So we continue this series, Fighting for a Good Faith, and I want to remind you of a couple of things before we actually get into the topic here this morning. First of all, what we're doing is we're outlining some of the major things that are often battlegrounds in our culture. We talked a little bit about fighting nationalism. Last week we talked about fighting racism. Today we're going to talk about homophobia. Next week we're going to talk about violence in our culture and how to approach that. And then we're going to talk about fighting sexism and ageism as we finish off this topic. And then we will go into a series for the time of Lent that leads up to Easter. And uh, we're going to be in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, during the weeks that lead up to Lent. So if you want to do some reading on your own, uh, Luke, um, the third gospel in the New Testament, is a good place maybe for you, for you to do some reading, just to kind of get the feel for the way uh, Luke presents the ministry of Jesus. So today, I want to remind you that we're using this as a key verse, fight the good fight of the faith. And we said that you can either fight uh, for a good faith or you can fight for a bad faith. And that's why we're trying to define some of these areas. We also said that it's not just on an individual level, that there are systems in place that often reinforce a bad faith. And that's why Paul will say, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world. Then lastly, he prays that all of these walls that occur in the first century between Jews and Gentiles might be taken down and that Jesus might be the peace of these two groups that did not get along very well. In our culture, there are a variety of things that separate us from others who make this country their home. But yet the prayer of Paul is the same for us as well, that we might see the walls of hostility come down and that we might seek out a one humanity of peace and love and joy. So that brings us to today's topic, fighting homophobia. This particular topic is, again, built upon a lot of misunderstanding at times of different Bible texts. Sometimes it's built upon an inward prejudice that we have learned from the beginning of our childhood, the way we have seen other people act with a community of people. And we have also said that the stories that we hear cause us sometimes to uh, begin to uh, be more educated about this topic. And that's what I'd like to do this morning, is talk about how stories force us to make choices. Now, when you think about stories as a whole, the thing that stories have in common are the heroes, the villains, and the victims. Whoops. How about that? I guess I shouldn't have eaten toast and, right? That made my finger slippery. Okay, is this going to, you can pause that any time, Corey. <coughs> there we go. There we go. See if I can do this without doing that again. <coughs> so, when you read stories, here's what you need to look for. It doesn't matter if it's a story that you're watching on TV. It doesn't matter if you're reading it in a novel or if you're reading it in the Bible. 
Every story is built upon heroes, villains, and victims. Just watch for that the next time. If there's a missing component, that story will, will bore you. Okay, you'll turn the channel if it doesn't have these three components. Well, the stories that we find within religion break down the same way. That there are those who think of themselves as heroes of the faith. They're the ones that are fighting for a good faith. There are those that are the villains, those that we are afraid of, those that should be shunned. And what happens sometimes is those villains become victims because of injustices done against them. Or if there's a pushback that's hard enough by those that have been victimized, then those that are the heroes become victims. So in a culture that we find ourselves, one of the things that sometimes happens is people that make a stand against certain individuals in our society, when that person or group of people pushes back on the narrative that they are communicating, all of a sudden they flip to being victimized. Well, I'm being persecuted for my faith. It's a fail-proof system. When you're a hero, you can look down upon other people. When they push back on you, you become the victim because you're the one that's being persecuted for your religious faith. So here's the way I put it. Within religion, the heroes are those who think they are keeping the purity of the faith. And when there is pushback, they become victims and they call for the elimination of the villains, if not literally, at least figuratively, because they are the religiously impure. This has been the story over the last several decades. The people that we love dearly, that are part of the LGBTQ plus community, have had to put up with a religious system that has pushed back on them for many, many years. And as they have engaged with that, they finally had their Popeye moment. You know what a Popeye moment is? The Popeye moment is enough's enough. That's all I can stand and I can't stand no more. So Popeye takes his can of spinach and he begins to fight back against that which is being done usually by uh, Brutus in the cartoon. Uh, and the victim is usually his girlfriend, Olive Oil. Now, that's all I can stand and I can't stand no more. So this can be true of racism. It can be true of this topic uh, on the, the LGBTQ plus rights within our society. And so when there is pushback, all of a sudden something happens. That's where these heroes of the faith all of a sudden become victims. Now, I read for you a passage out of Matthew chapter 3 earlier. John the Baptist confronts the Pharisees and the Sadducees for their religion doing harmful things. And you'll find in the Gospels, you'll see this in the Gospel of Luke when we get to this series, that they will push back against Jesus. They will push back against what the disciples are doing because they all of a sudden have become victims. And now all of a sudden the villains are Jesus and his disciples. Ultimately, Jesus will be killed and crucified upon the cross primarily because of the push of the religious community. Does that make sense? Okay. So the religious community wants all the power and control 
But when a group pushes back, all of a sudden they become victimized and they say we got to get rid of this villain. So when you keep that in mind, one of the things that happens in our society is when there are groups of people who come out, like that young man that I read off the Facebook page, they have all of this going for them. They're smart. They're educated. They have talent. They have gifts that they can give to the whole world. And yet, because they come out as gay, because they have an attraction to the same gender, all of a sudden, one of the things that happens is there's pushback upon them because now we, we are afraid of who these people are. And I'll get to that in a moment. There's kind of a panic that comes out of the hearts of people that don't understand the individuals who have known, usually from a very small age, that they are gay. And so what happens is culture begins to push back and they begin to try to put policies in place to take away rights and recognition from the LGBTQ plus community. Homophobia, and for that matter, transphobia as well, is the fear of, aversion to, and discrimination against sexual minorities, sexual and gender minorities, not minorities in the sense of being uh, not worthy of other people in the society. I'm just talking about percentage in the population. That's all I'm talking about. Discrimination usually restricts participation in society with the same freedoms as heterosexual people. So as you know, back in 2016, I lost my previous job, and that was the year of the Marriage Equality Act. When Esty and I came out in favor of that, that all people uh, should have equal rights within our society uh, to be able to get married to the people that they love, then there was that pushback, and um, we became the villains. And as the villains, we then got pushed out of that position. Now, what happens is this discrimination can find its way in a variety of different levels in society. But most often, it is found within the church. Look at this last point. This discrimination often bans this community from church membership, being able to serve within the church, being able to lead or take sacraments like baptism, communion, and marriage. That's all off limits. And yet, many churches will say that they're open and affirming, but if they do not provide the uh, civil rights and the religious rights of other people, well, they're not, okay? They're just kind of using a smokescreen. So what happens here is all of a sudden now, the church gathers together and builds up a momentum so that now what we find is there are individuals that are trying to push uh, for some of the rights that have finally been granted to the LGBTQ community, the, uh, those rights they would like to repeal and take back again. So keep your eye open for that in the coming year. What happens, though, is this. There is a scapegoat me mechanism built into all of this. Now, it's not just LGBTQ+. We, as individuals, often have a scapegoat goat mentality. And here's a variety of different people that are often confronted 
uh, with this problem. It can be whites, it can be Chinese, it can be straight, it can be American, women, Christians, rich, poor, Russian, blacks, the list could go on forever. And right up at the top is gays there. Now, what happens is a thing called the mimetic theory that was proposed by Rene Girard a number of years ago. And here's what he said. He said, as he observed uh, in his research, that the way people feel safe is when they gather together and they have a common enemy that they can direct their hatred and distrust to. And so, if you look in our culture, one of the things that happens is, take any one of these, those people are bad, those people can't be trusted, those people are not safe. When in reality, these individuals are all gathering together and creating their own little subculture, and anyone that's not in that subculture or doesn't agree with that subculture is a person that can't be trusted and, to an extreme, is a person that needs to be eliminated. So, as you know, there has been an ongoing problem within the last several years of uh, shootings in gay nightclubs. This happened as recently in Colorado Springs of November of 22, where five individuals were killed, a number of other people were injured. Back in 2016, the Pulse nightclub down in Orlando, there were a number of people that lost their lives, and there were a number of people that were injured in that. And it all goes back to this phobia that these people are not trustworthy, these people are not safe. So I asked myself the question this past week, where did all of this begin? When did this cultural shift begin to take place in our country? And I want to tell you the story of a man by the name of Matthew Shepard. Before I get there, here's Rene Girard's quote. He says, a scapegoat remains effective as long as we believe in its guilt. In other words, as long as we believe that this person is worthy of persecution, the uh, scapegoat mechanism remains in effect. So I want to tell you the story of Matthew Shepard. He lived uh, 1976 to 1998, and I want to get the facts straight on this, so I'm going to come back to my notes here so that I don't miscommunicate it. On October the 6th of 1998, this University of Wyoming uh, freshman, Matthew Shepard, was approached by Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson at the Fireside Lounge in Laramie, Wyoming. These three young men had talked, had a few drinks, and at the end of the night, McKinney and Henderson offered Matthew a ride home. But the ride took an ugly turn. They took him out to this remote place, and this is the actual site in Wyoming, where he was tied to that post there after he had been beaten. They tied him to this fence, uh, and they took his wallet and they found out where he lived and they went to his home to burglarize it so he was set up. 18 hours later there was a cyclist that was riding on this road and they found Matthew Shepard still tied to this post here. 
he had been beaten so severely that he had severe brainstem damage. And by the time he was taken to the hospital, he was in a coma and he lost his life, never regaining consciousness. He passed away on October the 12th, 1998. So six days later. He's 21 years old. He was an individual that was a bright young man studying political science, and he was chosen as the student representative for the Wyoming Environmental Council. He had many friends, he had a close extended family, and his father described him as optimistic. He was an individual that did not hide that he was a gay young man. Even though he was a gay young man, he was accepted by his peers for the most part, in his college community, he was known uh, for his openness, and his father said that he had a great passion for equality, and he would accept the uh, differences of other people. So why was this young man tied and beaten and left for dead? The two young men that were eventually arrested were charged with a hate crime. And this hate crime was built upon something where they pleaded uh, guilty, but by reason of insanity. And what they pleaded was the gay panic defense. Have you ever heard of that? The gay panic defense. So in a court of law, they claimed that they had temporary insanity because Matthew was a gay young man. They were afraid that he was going to take advantage of them, that he was going to try to seduce them in some way. And he was an individual that supposedly created this phobia within them that they were going to be harmed. So they took him out, they beat him up, they left him for dead, and they went to burglarize his household. This started a cultural shift. At this point, the gay community began to push back after it came out about why Matthew Shepard had been killed. And so at this point, the culture began to try to keep the gay community in the closet, but the gay community had their Popeye moment. And they began to form and organize, and things like Pride and other communities like that began to gain traction because they said, enough is enough. Can't stand this anymore. Now, when they push back, remember what I said about those three individuals, the heroes became victims, right? And all of a sudden, oh, they're trying to impose their standards upon me and my religious rights are being violated. No, they're trying to survive. Do you realize back in 2014, the FBI said there were 1,400 such crimes against the gay community? people that had been beaten, and yes, some of them that had been murdered. The problem was many in the LGBTQ community did not want to push back because there were not laws in place that defended the LGBT community, so they kept quiet. The FBI says there were probably a lot more cases than 1,400, and they had reasons for staying in the closet uh, and not saying this uh, um, abuse was done to me because they felt the system would not be on their side. Well, sometimes what happens is there is a collective trauma 
and the LGBTQ community has had to deal with collective trauma for many, many years. And this collective trauma is, are we safe in our own community? Are we safe in our own country? Now, what is often thrown out against the LGBTQ community is, well, we don't accept their lifestyle. And that's a bunch of crap. Because what is their lifestyle? What does the LGBTQ plus community want? They want the same thing you do. A good job, health care, friends, right? They want the exact same thing you do. And they also want the opportunity to fall in love and spend their life with someone that they can love in a monogamous, committed relationship. And yet, many times that gets perverted when those who are heroes and defending our Judeo-Christian rights all of a sudden become victims and they begin to push back in against the LGBTQ community as the scapegoats for everything that is wrong in our country. This is entirely unfair. And the reason it is unfair is the failure to listen to science, the failure to do research, the failure to understand how the Bible communicates on this topic. So on Wednesday nights, beginning the first Wednesday night of February, I'm going to take each one of the six passages in the entire Bible that seems to make mention to same-sex activity. What is going on there? And why was it taken to be pushed against a specific group of people. So you might find that interesting. We'll do some exegesis, which is a big term that means, hey, what was the context, what were the circumstances, and what was the author trying to get across when he talked about this? So having said that, what we want to do is research as well. One of the things that you can track down and do your own research on is same-sex attraction is not just a human trait. Did you know it's found in the animal world too? 1,500 species often will mate with someone of the same uh, gender and, uh, and do so. Uh, here's some examples. Mallard ducks, penguins, apes, elephants, giraffes, sheep, hyenas, lizards, and even fruit flies. Scientists have recognized that Sometimes the pairing of these individuals is not male and female, but is often uh, same-sex as well. This prejudice that has gone against the LGBTQ community uh, has not always existed to the level that it is in our current culture. What we find, though, is that 3,000-year-old tribal laws that is found in places like Leviticus are often used to clobber a community of people. And these passages are often called clobber passages. Uh, they are often used by clobber critics, if I can put it that way. So what we want to understand today is this. There's this tendency for people that don't have gay friends to have some illegitimate fears inside of them. These illegitimate fears often get um, somehow blown up and uh, exaggerated in so many ways that 
other people who have some of those same fears inside of them find their comfort with a mutual scapegoat. With that in mind, we need to always be asking ourselves: do we have inside of us a gay panic defense? And the way we can determine whether we have this pay, a gay panic defense inside of us is to ask these questions. Do I have negative stereotypes of gay people? Do I participate in bullying and making fun of people who are perceived to be gay? Do I use hurtful language like fag when talking about gay people? Do I tell offensive jokes about gay and lesbian people? Do I laugh at them? Do I not treat LGBTQ plus people with the same politeness that I extend to other people? When you do that self-reflection and you ask yourself those questions, you'll kind of know where you are on the radar of this gay panic defense. I believe Shade Tree Community Church doesn't have people that struggle with this a whole lot because some of you in this room are gay and many of us in this room have uh, a gay relative or a gay friend. And with that in mind, what we find is that fear subsides. But a culture as a whole still chooses to live by this fear that's inside of them. And this phobia eventually becomes a problem of offering uh, the civic rights and civil rights of individuals like you and I that take them for granted. So what I want us to think about today is that Isaiah passage that I read for you a moment ago. In Isaiah chapter 56, I read for you verses 1 through 8, and it is there that we find that the prophet is talking about a group of people that we might consider a minority, those that are not a part of the nation of Israel. And then he says this, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. So there he's talking about foreigners that are not a part of the nation of Israel. And then he says, and let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. What a eunuch is, is a term for a sexual minority. Now, there's a specific uh, thing that is often done in the Old Testament. Many men were made eunuchs because in, in a group of, uh, of women uh, that were part of the harem to the king, it was castrated males that would be safe with these women. Are you following what I'm saying? So there is a man-made um, eunuch. But Jesus will say to us in the New Testament that there are those that are born eunuchs. And he gives this uh, to us as a description that there are individuals that don't fit the binary choice of male and female. They fit somewhere in between. Other cultures have already known this. Native Americans has always recognized more than male and female, that there is sometimes a blending. And what we find is there are other nations around the world that have recognized that a binary category between male and female is too restrictive to talk about all the people within that country. And what we find is that in the Bible, eunuch is describing someone, whether man-made eunuch or born that way, 
is been pushed to the side. Now, some of them overcome the barriers. There's a man who's a eunuch from the nation of Ethiopia in the book of Acts, chapter 9. And Philip, one of the disciples, is told to go out and meet this Ethiopian eunuch. And he finds this Ethiopian eunuch. He's in his chariot. He rose above the restrictions of his day. And he's reading a scroll. And this scroll happens to be the prophet Isaiah. And he asks Philip what he needs to do. And Philip communicates with some hesitation. And what we find taking place is that Philip then says, well, you know, God is accepting of you. And this Ethiopian eunuch wants to get baptized. And, and so they find a little uh, bit of water and it is there that he baptizes this Ethiopian eunuch. You go on to Acts chapter 10 and Peter is given a vision. He goes up on the roof to pray one day and he has this vision of a sheet coming down with all kinds of animals in it. And some of them are clean animals, some of them are unclean animals in a Jewish law. And Peter, being a dedicated, faithful, Torah-observing Jew, says, I will not eat of the unclean animals. And God gives him this message in this vision, you do not call unclean, which I call clean. Fascinating. All of a sudden, he moved beyond his own tribal laws to see the bigger message. What the message was communicating, it wasn't really about animals at all. It was about people. You do not call people unclean that I cherish, that I love. And so Peter finally gets the message. He struggled with that, though. He had Gentile phobia. And what we find is that one time he was eating with some Gentiles, and there was another group of Jews came along. This is found in the book of Galatians. And they begin to accuse Peter of eating with Gentiles. And he then gets up from the table and he leaves. And Paul calls him on the carpet for it in the book of Galatians for being so offensive to this group of Gentiles because of the pressure of other Jews. You see, this is found everywhere in the Bible. It's not just a selective group of uh, verses. So what I want us to think about today is I want us to think about what God is doing in the midst of our own community here at Shade Tree. And I want us to think about how to engage with the Bible. And when we do so, we want to take the Bible seriously. Many, many Christians take the Bible literally, but they don't understand context, culture, and circumstances. It's better if you take the Bible seriously. And when you engage in that way, you begin to understand that it's not really communicating what you think it's communicating. So we're going to deal with each one of those passages in the weeks ahead. What I want to do today, though, is give to you another video clip. This one is from the same three guys as last week, but on the topic of homophobia. In the church in general, there are two positions. One is a non-affirming position, the other is an affirming position. So let it be known, online and in person, we are an affirming church, okay? Now make no bones about it. That's where we are. But there are non-affirming individuals within churches that will often use the Bible as a weapon. And the Bible is never meant to be a weapon. 
It was meant to be this story, group of stories of, that give to us insight and wisdom. And the Bible, because it is not a book, it's a library, has different things to say along the way. So let's say you're going to go into the library and you uh, come up to the librarian and say, hey, I want to know everything the library says uh, about, let's say, global warming. Just for example, what is the library's stance? Are you for or against global warming? And the librarian would look you in the eye and would say, there's a mixture of both on these shelves. This is a library. It's not one viewpoint. The Bible is a collection of books, and you'll see things changing along the way. But we pick and choose and cherry pick many times in the Bible. And when we pull this out to make it say what we want it to say, all of a sudden we're not taking the Bible seriously at all. We might be trying to take it literally, but we're not taking it seriously. And when that happens, it produces a lot of harm. And this is a confession of the Christian church who finally is waking up to that. Let's watch. Hi, my name is Brian McLaren. I'm a former pastor. I'm an activist, a blogger, an author. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm a teaching pastor at Wilden Hills Church in Maplewood, Minnesota. Hello, I'm Brian Zond, pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. I'm also an outspoken ally for LGBTQ people. I'm a straight Christian, and on behalf of the straight Christian church, I want to ask forgiveness from the GLBTQ community. And I want to apologize to the gay community for the treatment that you will often receive at the hands of people who profess to be followers of Jesus. Hi, I'm Bruxy, and I want to apologize to members of the LGBTQ community. Throughout history and yet to this day, straight Christians have judged you, we've excluded you, we've persecuted you, we've scapegoated you, all because you're different from us. The worst way, the most demonic way that we achieve unity is we pool together our own anxiety and fear and rage and project it upon some nefarious them. It's called scapegoating and it is demonic. And too often it has been gay people that have received that kind of hatred. The queer community has, over the years, been so horribly stereotyped by conservative Christians. The Christian church has been, until very recently, a universally hostile environment for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer people. Even to this day, a lot of straight Christians put the blame for social problems on the GLBTQ community. The reasons for this are complicated and sad, but it involves with the same kind of misuse and misinterpretation and misapplication of the Bible that led to the discrimination against women, led to anti-Semitism, but it expressed itself for all of history up until now in homophobia. I want you to know that insofar as straight Christians have acted and continue to act that way, they are acting in complete contradiction to what Jesus stood for. You know, Jesus never sided with the Pharisees and scapegoating certain people groups and judging them. In fact, he rebuked the Pharisees for their self-righteousness. In fact, Jesus sided with the judged. He, he hung out with those who were the most judged in his day. The Apostle Peter says that two words should come to mind when we're talking with someone with whom we disagree, and that's gentleness and respect. Gentleness, how we 
approach someone, not with condemnation, but with compassion and with a sense of care, respect, turns it up a notch and says, I not only want to be involved in compassionate care and kindness in our dialogue, I want to be in a learning posture. I want to be prepared to honor and respect where you're coming from. I had a dear friend who uh, in our senior year came out to me. My religion said that he had made a choice of a lifestyle and all this kind of ridiculous garbage that I was taught. And I look back now and I think, my religion made me a worse person toward my gay friend than I would have been otherwise. Jesus taught us that we're supposed to love like the rain falls and the sun shines. The rain never picks and chooses who it's going to get wet and the sun never picks and chooses who it's going to shine. It just does what it does. So also Jesus commands us to love without any consideration for a person's sexual orientation or their gender or their social position or their nationality or color of their skin or what have you. I would love to call other fellow conservative Christians to a new embrace of the gentleness and respect that the Bible calls us to. That we should learn how to love, honor, and cherish those brothers and sisters in the faith with whom we disagree. And to those who are gay, bisexual, lesbian, transgendered, queer in any sense of the word, to those of you, whether you are Christian or not, I want to say I am sorry because the people I am a part of have failed to show you Jesus. We have shouted the gospel as though it was a message of anger and condemnation rather than lived the gospel as something that should transform us first so that we can love the way Jesus loves us. I want to apologize and I want to pledge to seek to listen and to understand and to help gay Christians find a way to fully participate in the life of the church. It's time for us to apologize, to admit how wrong and evil and cruel our behavior has been, to make no excuses except to, just to say we were wrong and we're sorry. And we are committed now to leading the way to do better. The judging that straight Christians have done towards the GLBT community was done in God's name. But I want you to know that God is not behind that. God's heart grieves whenever straight Christians have treated you this way. Because God loves you. God loves you with a perfect, everlasting love, just as you are. You're made in the image of God, and Jesus gave his life for you, and you have unsurpassable worth. You couldn't matter more to God than you do this moment. And insofar as straight Christians, we're supposed to be ambassadors of Christ, representing Jesus, insofar as they have not reflected that worth to you, but have instead looked down on you, judged you, have been self-righteous towards you, excluded you. Insofar as they've done that, I ask for your forgiveness. Would you stand with me, please? If you become a friend, an ally, someone that works on behalf of justice for the LGBTQ plus community, there will be pushback. I guarantee it. But it's worth it. It's worth it. And I tell you what, 
there's a whole world of people that have been pushed aside that have so much to bring to us, not just here, but to our culture as well, if we will have the open heart to do it. So let's end with this thought. There is another ending to the story, the one where we set about the business of building a bigger table and filling every chair, the one where we burn down the bins and throw away the lists, the one where we lift up the fallen with an outstretched hand, the one where we never look away. I like this story better, don't you? I like that story better, don't you? So we go in peace, and we try to be a peacemaker. Join me in prayer as we close. Thank you, Father, for our time together. And certainly, we've only touched the tip of this topic. But we thank you that we can begin to orient ourselves to our own panic and our own defense mechanisms. Help us to have an open heart and an open mind. Help us, Lord God, to learn, to grow, to stretch, to, uh, to serve. All these things that are necessary in our world. As Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, so figuratively we wash the feet of those. Of those individuals that are often pushed aside and pushed into the mud and the dirt and left to die on the fence post. Lord, we ask that we will be individuals that have a huge heart. And may it be reflected in the way that we show love to all people. For I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great week and we'll see you next week, okay? Take care.